Welcome everyone to Comics from the Multiverse episode 334. I am Peter and joining me as always is Matt. Hey, what's up guys? This is a DC Comics podcast. We get together every week and we talk about the DC Comics we read. Coming up on this week's show, we have Batman issue 130, Gotham City year 1 issue 3, Dark Crisis Warzone issue 1, plus Matt checked out Poison Ivy issue 7 and Monkey Prince issue 9. And I have a pretty notable Patreon book in Animal Man 26. So uh, hey. that's what's uh, coming up on this week's show. And is this is this the big one? Is this the one that I think it is? This is the big one. And also yeah. appears to be the last issue. So I'm going to have to find yes. out what I'm doing uh, next, next uh, <laughs> for this Patreon slot. But uh, yeah, um, yeah, I'll, I'll warn everyone right now. I am operating in like no sleep. So if I say stupid things on this episode and make mistakes... And, you know, maybe swap, I don't know, Batman and, like, Kite Man around or something. That is very difficult considering none of the books I read, Kite Man was involved. So, <laughs> unless he shows up an Animal Man, uh, <laughs> sir. I'm just, I'm just, just, hypothetical, hypothetical example, that's all. Uh, yeah, no, so... Hey, we, uh, we're barreling towards the end of the year, although mm-hmm. this is actually the, the quietest week of the month. Uh, usually, well, yeah. there was a couple of years in a row where they took like a full week off around Christmas, mm-hmm. and they're not doing that this year. Yeah. Uh, so uh, what I will, will say just for you know ad- an advance of the end of the month is that the episode that we would have been recording on Christmas Eve, which we were never going to, but if right. we were recording on Saturday like normal, it'd be Christmas Eve. That episode will be like two days late, probably. I'll, I'll just, you know, give or take. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the plan, just so you know what to expect around Christmas. Obviously, the reasons are, you know, <laughs> pr- pretty clear yeah. why. But, yeah. yeah, holidays, that's why. Christmas. The Yuletide. Yeah. Um, and then possibly the one the following week could be a little late as well, although I think me and Matt are just like, ah, we don't care about New Year's, so... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> so, uh, uh, probably no disruptions there. And then, of course, soon after that, the annual episode for 2022... Which I think is annual number six, if I'm right in saying. Oh my god, we've been doing this too long. <laughs> we'll be soon after that as well. So uh, look out for those things at the end of the month. But uh, hey, Matt. Yes, sir. I have had no sleep. I'm very yep. tired. Getting to the end of the show means I get to. Well, I don't get to sleep properly because I still have to put this up for Patreon. But, yes. <laughs> but get, get to, to rest a little bit, yeah. put it up, and then sleep. Yes, but... get, get to the end of the show. I get to sleep at least a little bit, right? Yeah. We're, we're, there's going to be breakneck. We're going to speed run. And it starts now with the uh, Comixology Top 10. That's right, Matt. There's always time for Comixology Top 10. Doesn't matter how sleep deprived I am. It's happening. Yep. So. Uh... Let me guess. Let me guess. I got to guess. Okay. Is it Batman? <laughs> for Tuesday for DC's books, yes, is Batman. Uh, so uh, Tuesday's books, as of right now, Comic Solidly, the top selling is Batman 130. No surprises, really. Uh, nope. Number two is Dark Crisis Warzone, issue one. Wow. Uh, although bizarrely on Comicsology, it's listed as Dark Crisis issue one Warzone, which is <laughs> confusing as hell. Yeah, someone, someone missed a, a um, punctuation there. Yeah, very odd. Uh, so you got that, and then number three is Batman the Joker, the Deadly Duo. Okay. Which, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, Mark Silvestri, I get it, he sells, so. I would probably just say Batman and Joker sell, if I was making a guess. Yeah, true. Uh, Gotham City Year One is number four. Okay. And then number five is the Joker, the man who stopped laughing. 
Uh, and then number six is Poison Ivy, issue seven. Number seven is Sword of Azrael, issue five. And shockingly, we have an un-DC book. Because keep in mind, there wasn't as many DC books this week of, mm-hmm. of note. So there is actually something else. This looks like a trade uh, or a graphic novel here that's snuck in next. And that So number eight is Avatar, The High Ground, volume one. Wait, as in as in the the um as in our Lord James Cameron as in our Lord and Savior James Cameron's avatar, yes. 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 Really? Did not know this. Yes. No 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 there's a, a, a comic. Sherry L. Smith and art by Guillermo Balbi. Wow. Yeah. There you go. Uh so there you go. Yeah, where the uh, water comes soon. out next week, right? Yeah, yeah. A lot of buzz. There's a lot of buzz for it. Okay. Yeah, all four and a half hours of it. Three hours, twenty minutes. Come on, if you're going to, yeah, you're going might to as well be four and a half feet. I wish it was four and a half. That this is the first Cameron movie I've had <laughs> in thirteen years. Give me oh, all the Jesus. minutes. Yeah, give me all the minutes. Make that. Are you one of those people that got really depressed after seeing the first one because you could never go to Pandora for real? <laughs> no. Are you one of those people? No, 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 no. This is okay. more about having a James Cameron directed film than it is about Pandora. But, um. What was I going to say? Aye, make that, that chump Peter Jackson look like a, a child with your runtime. That's what I say. I mean, in fairness, I'd rather see a James Cameron movie that's that long than a Peter Jackson movie that's long. Because usually with James Cameron, there's going to be, you know, more my genre um, than than Lord of the Jackson and his Hobbits and Elves. <laughs> what was the, what's the last non-Hobbit movie that Peter Jackson made? And not, not a... Uh, not the documentary either, because I know he did that one about World War One. Well, he's done two because he used to a Beatles documentary. Yeah, so not a documentary. So is it Lovely Bones? Is is the last time he had something that wasn't Hobbit related? That may be it. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe Lovely Bones. And I love the Frighteners. Frighteners is my favorite Peter Jackson movie. So, um, I guess mine's more, more Brain Dead. Is. But yeah, still have never seen that one. I need to knock that out. Mm. Um, it came up on that Shutter list in in the top. You know. Top best scares. It was pretty high. So, All right. Yeah. Uh, number nine is back to DC with Monkey Prince. Uh, <laughs> being beat by Avatar. Uh, uh, and then number 10 is The Witcher Ronin, which is a manga. So we got, we've got a manga yeah. in the top 10 for Tuesday. So yeah, DC didn't have as many books out this week. And it shows. Um, yep. So there you go. And then if you look at Wednesday for the rest of the industry. I'm gonna guess. I'm trying to find which X book because there's there's two that I could guess. Um, I'll go X Men Red. Nope. Dang. All right. Which is it? It's not an X Men book. It's uh mm-hmm. appears to be the first issue of an event called Dark Web. Where the hell is this on League of Comic Geeks? <laughs> oh, there it is. It's like three, three, four rows down. That's an issue one. The issue ones always yeah. suffer on, yeah. on their page because uh, not enough people have clicked it yet. But yeah, it seems to be Spider-Man focused given the name. Uh, Let's see so. who's who's doing this one. This is uh, Zeb Wells, so a longtime Spider-Man writer. Um, oh my God, that's tying into the Clone Wars. Oh boy, have have fun with this one, guys. <laughs> And, the Clone Wars, the Clone Saga. Yeah, I was going to say, too, you're mixing yeah. some Star Wars stuff in there. Yep, I did. Uh, number two is X, sorry, Immortal X-Men issue nine. There it uh, is. Number three is X-Men Red issue nine. 
number four is Fantastic Four, issue two. Mm-hmm. Number five is Avengers, issue 63. Number six is Daredevil, issue six. Number seven is X-Force, issue 35. Number eight is Extreme X-Men, issue one of five. This is Chris Claremont. <laughs> um... This has to be this has to be set in a I'm looking for this one. Where's this one popping up at? Yeah, that's gotta be set in one of those Claremont universes, right? Like Probably. Um Salvador La Roca on the R? Yeah. God, it looks so mid two thousands. And if that's your thing, cool. But yeah. Um Yeah. I can never remember which the L- Laroca is that I don't like, or if there's more than one. Yeah. I think that's the one I don't like. Uh, number nine is Miles Morales Spider-Man issue one. So relaunch for for Miles uh, with Cody Ziegler uh, as the the new writer. Any relation to Dolph? <laughs> Spelled differently, so I, I don't think uh, so. Dang. Also, I'm pretty sure that's not his real name. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, actually, I'm not familiar. I, I looked him up actually because I was looking at this earlier, mm-hmm. and it, uh, he's been one of the writers on Amazing Spider-Man. You know, because it was weekly okay. for a while, so there was like lots yeah. of writers working on it. Uh, so that seems to be some of his main comic stuff. Uh, number ten uh, is this our only non-Marvel book? I think it is Gargoyles issue one. Hey, had I known, I would have picked that up. Love that show. I've never it's seen any Gargoyles. Even... Oh, it's Dynamite. Mm. Yeah, very very nineties. Oh, it's from the series created. Oh, I'm gonna have to go and get this. Maybe maybe I'll wait for trade because it's the original series creator. Um, okay. It looks like it's in continuity. So, yeah. uh, Angela there. There's, yeah, there they all are. I guess notably outside the top 10, at 13 you've got Thor. So that's kind of fallen down a little bit since yeah. there's uh, more notable creatives on it. And then 14 is the adjectiveless Spider-Man by Dan Slott and Mark Bagley. So that's fallen down a little bit as well. Mm-hmm. So. Where'd Spawn come in at? So they know they're pushing the Batman because they keep getting... This week, couldn't couldn't turn a page in a DC comic and not like, uh, get that Spawn Batman. Spawn team Batman? Up. Uh, I don't see it. Well, no, this is Spawn three thirty six. Um. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Spawn, Spawn, Spawn. I'm looking for Spawn. I'm looking for Spawn. I'm looking for Spawn. I'm not seeing that. Yeah. <laughs> I can't see Spawn. Yeah. It's crazy because like it's it's action. Comics, detective comics, and then I feel like Spawn is the next. You know, we don't get, we're not used to these high numbers anymore because of all the renumbering all the companies have done. Yeah. Honestly, yeah, you if know? I see something in the 50s, I'm like, whoa, something got yeah, to yeah, 50. Yeah. So, yeah, Spawn 336. That's, uh... that's, I mean, that's it. Batman's up at 130, which is something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we're going to get to a point where this volume of Batman is going to be as long as when Superman got his second volume. Yeah. And then it got folded back in. Yeah. Well, Nightwing's coming up on 100, so that's cool. That's true, that's true. You know? Uh, um, yeah, Flash and Wonder Woman both reverted back to their yeah. original numbering, so they're up mm-hmm. to high numbers, but... Yeah. Yeah, uh, there you go. Uh, cool, cool. Not a super exciting top 10 this week, but hey, they can't yeah. all be winners. Yeah. So, there you go. Um. But yeah. Uh, there is actually a bit of news this week as well. Uh, the one little uh, limited series for March has dropped this week in the news, and that is a Superman book. 
Uh, Christopher Priest and Carlo Pugilain, who of course worked on Deathstroke together, yeah, uh, are doing a Superman series, a self-contained, which presumably means out of continuity, and given the yeah. premise, I assume it is. Uh, so it's Superman Lost, and it's about Superman who's went away to fight a war that lasts 20 years or something like that, or a mission that lasts 20 years, but it only takes, a, you know, over minutes on Earth. So for Lois, like, no oh, time no. has passed. But for Superman, he's been gone for 20 years. So it seems to be, you know, deal- dealing with the the relationships of yeah. turmoils that come from that. Um, I'll, I'll read the exact text here just to give you a, a sense. Um, tells the story of Superman who's been lost in space for 20 years uh, of his time, but returns to Earth just minutes after he left, uh, as far as Lois and Lane and Batman are concerned, uh, and how about his odyssey of solitude impacts his relationship with Lois. So I presume you're going to maybe like be cutting back and forth between like after he's returned and what he was doing and what those he was 20 doing, years. Yeah. yeah. And him, him trying to um, readjust to life yeah, you know where where it seems like he wasn't gone that long, but so much has happened to him. Uh, it's kind of similar to John, right? Like a little bit, kind of. Yeah, I, I guess yeah. what they're going to be doing with us is this idea that he's been like Superman's been in his little castaway story, mm-hmm. so he comes back this changed man because he's been through all this stuff. Uh, yeah, so it's even bigger than John. When you think of it because I mean John was only yeah. really like what five years something like that. Yeah, you know, whereas Superman is. I mean, twenty years is a long time. No, that's I mean, that's a generation, right? Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. But crazy, no, I'll definitely check this out. I mean, Superman, but it's also I enjoyed mostly that Deathstroke. Uh, it got it got a little wonky. I need to catch up on his Black Adam because I have them. So I kept getting them from the shop. I just haven't had time to read them. Yeah, um, I do feel like all the priest books I've read have eventually dropped because mm-hmm. they they just read poorly monthly. But, I mean, I'll give yeah. it a try. It's a new Superman mm-hmm. book. So. Yeah, it was never the quality, right? It's always the what's going on because there's so many moving parts, you know? Yeah. Um, so. But, no, this is great. I mean, uh, the art was always great, too, in Deathstroke. Uh, as I remember, Superman had a couple cameos. Always looked pretty good. So, yeah, well... Yeah, uh, so that comes out in March fourteenth, uh, this first this year, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a ten issue book, and we'll be getting March solicitations in probably a week, maybe two weeks, depending on when Ooh. they put them out. Uh, no yawning, Matt. It's not allowed. Yeah, sorry. I was it's saying been, that. I was saying that because you're going to make me yawn. I know. So. Oh, that means you have empathy for me, right? That's that's a that's a real thing. Oh, is that the thing? Is that, uh-huh. is that how it goes? Oh, look, Pete, I know. Uh, you always mean it's still the ones you love the most. <laughs> Which means Connor. Connor's your favorite person. Oh, no, uh, no, 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 no. No. Who? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, let's get into the comics then. Uh, Batman issue 130... Chip Zarsky writing with Jorge Jimenez on the art. So the last issue of this was, like, it had good parts. It had some really well done parts, some really nice mm-hmm. art. Uh, the story's been kind of doing some ballsy things that every time I think maybe I don't like this, then the next issue kind of makes me, wins mm-hmm. me over. And then the first time that wasn't true was the, uh, like, oh, Gotham's under siege again, because we've done that so many yeah. times recently by various things. Right. So the last issue ended with Batman stranded in space, the Watchtower has been destroyed, 
no ships seemingly. And the first half of this Batman issue is just how he gets back to Earth, right? And it's, it's Gravity Batman edition. It's, yeah, it's Gravity with Batman. Here's the thing. I was cause I was so conflicted reading this first half of the issue because I think it looks great. The art's phenomenal. I think it's fairly well told. I, I kind of like the sort of the how like bombastically cinematic it all is because it is very like much like Gravity, but with Batman. Uh, but there is just something just at its core that's just a bit silly about the idea that Batman's back suit can withstand re-entry. <laughs> that yeah, just annoyed so- me. <laughs> It was like probably over 10 years ago now, the guy did the space fall, right? Where he took mm. the balloon all the way up to the upper atmosphere. And then he, he fell out and he was in a fully pressurized suit and he still lost consciousness. And like, he fell for like 30 seconds unassisted. It was very scary. Thought we were going to see something bad. Um, And I understand that Batman always has a plan for whatever, but yeah. The bad suit's not this fully pressurized thing, and it's also he's running low on oxygen. Like they set that up even before he enters the atmosphere. So it was even a bridge too far. And then he's he never loses consciousness. And he uses the what was it? The the ribs in the bat the in the cowl and the cape to assist him on the way down. So he even does it like without a parachute. And it was just a little bit too much. I mean, the visual's great, obviously, with hitting yeah. the cape out and he's, like, coming down for his landing and all the rest of it. Like, the whole thing looks great. Like, the, the whole sequence from start to finish is very exhilarating as far as, like, storytelling goes. It's just that the core concept of it's just, just a bit too far for a character who's supposed to still be human. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, I like, really I, I really thought before he hit the atmosphere that there was going to be, you know, a Green Lantern or you know, someone. Someone was going yep. to be there to, like, bail him out. Great. Yeah, Green Lantern, Martian, someone that we hadn't seen yet because we know Superman was dealing with um, with, uh, with the, the, the robot, right? Mm-hmm. Um, why am I blanking on the name? It's the name of the, the art. Feel safe. There we go. Um, so we, we know that. So yeah, I was expecting maybe Wonder Woman, someone that we hadn't seen yet um, to, to come in at the last minute. Um, yeah, just just really surprising. Uh, that uh, It's just, uh, clearly Zarsky doesn't mind doing these over-the-top things with Batman yeah. and don't get me wrong. I, I get what he's doing here. Mm-hmm. Um, like you know, it, it, like he lands in the snow near the fortress, which I guess was kind of mm-hmm. planned because he was yeah. aiming for it. And he just stands up and he's like, "All right, time to get to work." It's like the idea that you know, landing from orbit. <laughs> yeah, phase that's him. the thing too is that it should have been like this thing where somebody finds him. Yeah, yeah. That, again, that's taxing. Like, on on a, even on a superhero level, you know, him doing all of this stuff again i think just I, as a regular human i do think doesn't... some people will have that reaction it's like it's a superhero comic whatever and i, I get mm. that but like the, the, i think there's lines i think there's some limits where yeah because like, because even if this let's say this is hal and not not bruce and he's missing his ring and he gets his ring on at the last second then i could you know green lantern stuff i could accept that he can get up dust himself off but, but that's that's a magic force field, though. You have to accept right. that I can just do things like that. Right, that's what I mean. Batman doesn't have a magic force field here. It's, it's literally his bat suit. Uh, the magic force field is, is plot armor, I guess. Which, don't get me yeah. wrong, Like there, there are materials that won't burn up on re-entry. I know mm-hmm. there was a big deal a long time ago about watches that were designed yeah. to like survive re-entry. And I'm like, what's well, the point? You're going to burn yeah. up into like a million... It's, it's more to do with the forces of it, right? Because when you think about how a, a mechanical watch works, yes. if it gets just out of alignment, that's what it's more 
about than I think burning up, right? Um, and it's just cool to wear something from space. Like my ring is a tungsten ring. It's the same metal they use in um, the space shuttle because it's it's not highly conductive and it's you know the melting points high, whatever. It's just cool. So I get wearing a watch like that. But yeah, just the the regular bat suit being you know air you know airtight and yeah, just it, again, it's a little bit too much. But the back half I really liked because of what Zadarsky's setting up. I just of, of, I think of how they just, have to take down failsafe. Oh, what you said about the suit there, like yeah, see mm-hmm. if he'd like got into a pod that was floating from the watchtower mm-hmm. and it had like a space bat suit, and yeah. I, I would have been like, okay, fine, I'll roll with it. Right, this is a but suit designed for it. Yeah, it's just what he was wearing. Yeah, it's and his that, regular bat suit. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's again, that's where it's. It's not much. airtight. He's he's got like mm-hmm. uh, you know, he's wearing gloves that he just. Yeah, how m- <laughs> Yeah, how many times do we see him minus the gloves and the cowl? Yeah, just walking around in the in basically the bat pajamas. He probably should you know? have frozen to death before he even got yeah. to. <laughs> There's that, and again, the gravity <laughs> of re-entry, like the way that they have to design like spaceships and rockets and capsules and stuff to deal with the re-entry. Like you saw it in, even in Gravity, like we brought up at the beginning, it's a lot. Like. Coming down out of space is a is a huge. It's a lot of energy being expelled, and for just a regular human in a even bat suit or not, he should have been liquefied. Um, put it in comics, whatever. It was just you know you have to spend your disbelief a little bit, but this was a little bit too much. Yeah, I thought either someone was going to bail him out, or maybe just maybe he was going to like find like so, you know something to go inside for re-entry. Yeah. You know, some sort of metal enclosure, maybe mm-hmm. part of a ship part of something yep. you know once once he deemed everything in the right way okay take me duck in because i need metal right. around me to protect me or whatever but whatever right um so yeah uh, obviously he goes to the fortress and mm-hmm. failsafe's on his way which again really great panels of failsafe walking in the snow towards the yep. fortress you're getting that you know that oncoming threat this very terminator-esque mm-hmm. uh and actually, there's a a moment here that I really like. So Superman goes out in like a, a battle suit to fight Failsafe yep. this time to you know hopefully hold his own. And and yeah, because he's still not fully recovered from the kryptonite uh, wound. Yeah. Um, Even without so... that, though, I think it's just to protect him from further kryptonite. Mm-hmm. You know, it's to right. shield him from it. Uh, but obviously, uh, <laughs> Failsafe's got some trick moves up his sleeve. He's yep. the secret nerve pinch that'll make him heat vision inside his helmet, and you know, obviously so at, at first. I thought they did. I've seen this in other like classic comics where they play with the idea that Bruce and Clark look very much the same. Mm-hmm. So I thought maybe this was Batman coming out in a Kryptonian suit to kind of give time, you know, against failsafe. But um, then with the Kryptonite started to affect Superman again, I was like, oh, okay, that's not what they're going with. Yeah. It actually is Superman. Uh, there was actually <laughs> kind of a nice moment with uh, Bruce and Tim. Uh mm-hmm where Bruce is thinking about this nightmare of all his Bat family dying, but he's like, no, I'm not going to let that happen. And he's like, look, Failsafe's coming for me. He's designed to kill Batman uh, or defeat Batman, but he doesn't stand a chance against Batman and Robin. So it's like a nice team-up moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, it's a really natural way to get that phrase into the into the dialogue. Uh, so they run out as a dynamic duo and try to fight Failsafe. Batman's whole plan involves putting some nanites into a hole that he made uh, in, yeah. a pre- in the previous fight. So yeah, because they what they basically have to do is introduce compassion into Failsafe, because that's the difference between, you know, Bruce as this machine, right, as the Bat Machine, the Bat God, whatever it is. It's the the knowing what's right and what's wrong, 
and feeling for those that are, are doing wrong, right? So, but it can't be like a virus, right? Because fail-safe systems will shut that down. So it basically has to be like this delayed thing. So I, I like that whole part. I like that, you know, this was Frankenstein's monster and Batman designed it a little bit too nice that they have to come up with this Hail Mary. Yeah, um, it has to basically be something <clears throat> that will just feel like it's still part of the system, yep. but like we'll slowly introduce the idea that, uh, you know, compassion, like you say, and all that sort of thing. Yep. Uh, but the, so the big ending is that Failsafe still wants to shoot Batman with mm-hmm. uh, this the fancy beam gun, mm-hmm. uh, which, as we see, is actually a teleporting gun uh, when we see this at the end. But he shoots Batman in the snow, and the fact that he teleports him, and even, I mean, it's red instead of blue, but there's a very Dr. Manhattan vibe uh, with Rorschach yeah. here, because uh, Tim's on his knees looking at just this red puff of snow yep. coming from the snow, and it made me think of the blue... You know, you know, residue. When you obliterate them. Yeah. Yeah. It made me think of that a lot. So he basically, he thinks he's just watched Batman die. And right. Failsafe's like, Batman eliminated and just flies off. Job done. Yeah. Happy days. Um, but in the last page, we see that Batman's been teleported to Crime Alley where his parents died and he's lying in the rain. And I have to say, uh, whatever you want to say about this development, that page mm-hmm. is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Now, why would Failsafe teleport him to there? Or is this a Bruce thing? That's where I got a little bit lost. Is this Was this part of Bruce's plan? Was to get shot and get teleported to Crime Alley to make it look like he's been taken care of? Or or what? Hmm. Yeah. That's a good question. I, I don't know. Like, part yeah. of me thinks Failsafe did this intentionally because of the compassion. Mm-hmm. And the, the idea that Batman is eliminated is more like less literal and more like figurative where okay batman's eliminated and he's going back to when he was just bruce wayne and that and the last time he was really just bruce wayne was in the alleyway before his parents got shot you know that that's when mm-hmm. he changed you know in essence so maybe that's what the sim- symbolism means but like yeah. without more i can't really say i'm, I'm just sort of yeah because that's where here. i kind of got lost i was like okay he's in crime alley i get that but th- was this part of bruce's plan you know, was this because I didn't think the compassion had taken hold just yet? You know, now, now I don't actually think it had consciously. I'm wondering if subconsciously it did, though. Right. Which is why Failsafe thinks he's maybe just murdered them, but instead right. he's actually teleported. In Crime them. Alley. Yeah. Right. Um, which puts puts Bruce back in Gotham, where now he can. Or it could be less that it's Bruce's plan currently, but more so that when the Batman of Zurinar built Failsafe, right. he put That's... in this contingency at the time. Right. That's what I'm thinking, because it returns him back to point one, like you thought, but yeah. Zurinar, in order to survive, takes him back to where he was born. You know, now that puts him back in Gotham. And now Failsafe is, you, you know, I don't even say ego because he's a robot, but he has that swagger that he's won. So now he's off, it's, off balance. It's worth mentioning this is billed as the <clears throat> finale to the arc. So right. this is, you know, we're we're going into a new arc with this 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 cliffhanger, yep. which is, you know, uh, mm-hmm. which is fun. Like, uh, you know, I, I, th- I think, <laughs> obviously there may be a lot to do with it in the next arc with the city mm-hmm. being occupied by failsafe and like maybe Batman has to win the city back. I kind of hope not because I think what's refreshing, at least about this issue and the last issue is that it barely dealt with the idea that Gotham was under siege. Yeah. Because the last thing we need is another story about Gotham under siege for a while. Yeah. Uh, and in my head, 
once Bruce has been eliminated, Failsafe goes back to being, you know, dormant, right? Because it's done its job. I don't know, because I could see it. Yeah. I could see it being programmed to just continue being the new Batman, effectively. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it's given us a lot to think about, right? Like, so props to Zdarsky for that. I just wish it was a little bit more, uh, a little bit more concise. I think it's really well told. I think it's just occasionally he likes to use a concept or an idea that I don't like. And right. That's basically the only real issue I have with it, mm-hmm. uh, which is going a bit too far with the gravity thing, even though I thought it all looked tremendous and was mm-hmm. very fun to read. Uh, or the Siege stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, there's just, there's, just, there's just ideas sprinkled in that I don't like, but fundamentally, some of the character beats, like, you know, he's no match for Batman and Robin. Mm-hmm. Bruce saying he'll be okay as he's saying, no, let me get shot, you know, in the snow. Yeah. That's a touching moment. The last page is gorgeous. The man has his art throughout is, yeah. is beautiful. Like this last page is you'll get the rain coming down, but there's the spots of red in the uh-huh. in the waters it's hitting around Batman. Really, really nice. All the stuff in space at the start. You know, if you're doing gravity in a comic book, right, where you've got someone and in, in this case it's Batman's using his grapple mm-hmm. gun to like sort of propel him to from mm-hmm. one thing to the next. Like all of that has to be done completely visually. And then like, obviously the burning up and re-entry of literally like with the cape out and you've got the, the flames going around the cape. Like mm-hmm. it has a fantastic visual. Like I do want to like, critique it, which by the way, like he never mentions how he's covering his eyes. Like I, I guess right. there's lenses over the eyes that can withstand the heat. Yeah. Uh, but whatever. He he mentions covering his mouth with his, uh, his underpants, his right. trunks. <laughs> Which he, he laughed about, you know, he's given Clark trouble about the briefs. Yeah. But now he says that he has a point. Because he says his oxygen mask won't withstand yep. the re-entry heat, so he puts right. his trunks over his face to, to cover them. Uh, which, yeah. you know, fine. Um, yeah. But the visuals are all gorgeous, like absolutely mm-hmm. stunning uh, for that first half and then the ending. So. Yeah. I, I I would love for Jimenez to do a a silent issue one time. Mm-hmm. I think that would be really good, right in that wellhouse. Um, but yeah, no, Jimenez is great. Yep, no, wonderful. Um, did you read the backup? I did. So it's the the finale. It's called I am a gun, and um, Joker is gonna. It starts with the Joker trying to make a getaway. Um. Cause, cause the Zernar Batman takes a step towards him, um, and Joker's like, "You're as crazy as a soup sandwich," um, and so Zernar just lets Joker have it. Like he is not holding back. But then it gets into this like metaphysical breakdown where um, Bruce is on as Batman is like almost like on a psychiatrist bed, um, <clears throat> talking to Zernar in his head and. He's like, you're only supposed to uh, defend me from psychological attacks. And Zernar points out to, to Bruce, is like, the Joker is a psychological attack. That's every time you fight, he's in your head. And that's the danger of Joker. He needs to be put out because him existing is always going to cause you problems. Um, and as this is going on, Batman is, is holding Joker out of a window. Um, and... It gets to this, you, you turn to the page, and it gets to this really cool where the Zerd R Batman is, is holding Bruce, but there's like blood pouring out of Zernar's face um, as he's like, you know, telling Bruce that killing the Joker saves people. 
where it's Bruce questions or where does that end? Um, and he goes, yeah, when, when you kill them all, when you, when you've taken them out. So just this idea that Zernar is kind of the same as failsafe in that he's not going to stop until the job's done. Cause that's why Zernar exists. He is that, that the, you know, that drive to, to keep Batman going. Um, <clears throat> and Joker is, is, you know, trying to talk himself out of this. And um, Bruce sees his dad's face in in the Joker, and um, that's when when it almost snaps him out. My iPad wants to go, so he hears a "What about me?" and uh, in his head, there's Joker, but it's him from the Killing Joke before he's Joker. So he's still John like Joker, but he's not as bright and mm. sunny. That you know that there's something similar in Joker there but it's almost flipped and that he doesn't know what's happening is that something has always been broken and that makes batman um feel pity for joker um and he's like well you know if you kill everyone who's going to save me um and and the joker in this part starts crying and then martha wayne shows up and tells him that it's okay you're broken but my son will fix you that's what batman does you know, and um, he goes, I don't know how. And his mom tells him, you know, you're my son. You're your father's son. You're not a killer. Your father was a doctor. You save people. You're going to help him. And, you know, you're Bruce Wayne. You're not this. And she goes and pulls the cover off of the Zernar in Bruce's bread. And there's nothing there. There's just a smile. There's nothing under the cowl. It's there. So it was a pretty fun, like, little, you know, in Bruce's head on how he's all dealing with this. And she tells him, you know, you're not hollow. This is just hollow anger. Save him, save everyone, and save yourself. So Batman has just thrown Joker out of the window, but the in-his-head version runs back over to the window, fires the grapple gun, um, and saves Joker. And it's very reminiscent of the Dark Knight to where he, you know, Joker's hanging there upside down. All these Joker cards start flowing underneath and, Bruce realizes how dangerous he is, you know, so he goes back to reprogram to get to get Zern R in check. And it's also what it's also what preempts failsafe because he says here, you know, he's not a gun. He's the safety on the gun, right? He's he's a mechanism to keep things safe. And he, you know, that he has to make sure that the Zern R protocol shares Batman's lines and has failsafes and barriers. So he goes back into that that chamber. Uh, Robin shows up, reminds him that simply existing that you know he has people to look out for and that he needs light. He can't just be dark. So uh, Bruce goes to put on a new shirt and it's got the yellow right um, around the bat symbol. Mm. And Robin's like, "Oh, I like that." He's like, "Yeah, I saw something similar," but he couldn't get out of his head. And he's talking about Anzernar. He lies and says that it's you know it's to draw the enemy fire to the, you know, to this piece of armor. But it's actually the reminder that you need to have light in the darkness. Um, and that there's something lurking behind the bat. And then it just ends with Zert and R. Um, really good story. Really good supplement to, to the whole failsafe thing. Because it, it really gets into what makes Batman different, right? Is that he, he knows his line. He knows where he has to stop. And to answer that question, why doesn't he just kill the Joker? It's because 
he doesn't feel that the Joker is the real person, that there's someone in there that he'll eventually be able to reach. Mm. Um, and that's something that we've tried on so many times with the way that Zdarsky and the artist Romero, the way that they get at it with this mental battle in Bruce's head. Uh, really, really like it. Um, and Romero's art looks just enough like the Silver Age. To, it really makes the Zern art pop with the Joker. Because it's all this bright pop art looking stuff that he has going on. So, And I wasn't even annoyed when the Waynes shows up. When at least Martha shows up. Right? Because these are all, you know, things going on in Bruce's head. So, of course, his parents are going to try to reach out. Because they're the reasons why he does all this. Mm-hmm. Um, also helped that we didn't see Broken String of Pearls. So, I, I admire the restraint there. So... But yeah, almost. I enjoyed this more than the main issue. Okay, so, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. All right, what were you rating yeah. Batman then? So, um, I will rate the the first part. I'll give that a seven, and then I'll give this an eight. So I'll give the whole issue a seven point five. Yeah, I think I'll I'll say seven as well, just because. Like, I wish it could be higher. There's just a couple of things that just are a little too silly to, yep. to buy into. But I do think it was all told very well and drawn very mm-hmm. well. So uh, don't make no mistake about what I'm saying. Uh, next up, Gotham City Year One, Issue 3. Tom King writing with Phil Hester on the art. And the investigation uh, by Slam Bradley uh, truly begins, uh, one would say. Uh, mm-hmm. We get kind of a flashback to when he lost control as a cop, which ultimately led to him. This, this <laughs> scene reminded me of LA Confidential, when when um, Bud goes in. Uh, what's it called? The Christmas? It's not the Christmas massacre, but where they beat all of the the inmates. Uh, the riot, the Christmas riot, reminded me of this a lot. So, um, really well drawn. Yeah, yeah, it's all bathed in red, so you get that it's mm-hmm. a different time period, mm-hmm. uh, and it just feels like you know they're they're beating up this this criminal for intel, and Slam kind of loses it and starts beating the absolute piss out of him. Yeah, uh, well, it's not just that; is that they they do this thing where the the lead detective has this guy, and and he has a gun, and he tells him that this gun's a lie detector. And it'll only go off if it thinks you're lying. Yeah. And he puts his hand on the table and then shoots it and goes, oh, well, it wasn't supposed to be loaded. Um, and it's like where this is where Sam has realized how broken the city is. Yeah, this right? is where At he, least the police department. This is where he snaps. And I should have made this clear. He, mm-hmm. he attacks the detective, mm-hmm. not the criminal. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yep. Uh, and the other cops have to pull him off of him. Uh, so it's, yep. um, you know, it's a, it's a really bold start to the issue. And then you yep. get the idea that slam is expecting you know to have more trouble in the morning um but instead of being arrested again like he's expecting mm-hmm. to uh in walks mrs wayne and mm-hmm. is like i want to hire you i want to hire you i want you to find my daughter uh my husband believes she's alive still i no longer do i think after the events of the previous night which was the the money exchange but then the baby wasn't where yeah. he said she was i think she's already dead uh, the line she uses is a mother knows. She can already mm-hmm. feel it that it's, things have changed. Uh, and Slam is paid a lot of money, although he says that he would have done it for free in his narration. Uh, yeah. I, say, I say narration. He, he's talking to Batman, but you know. Yeah, he's talking to Batman, but this is the, you know, this would have been the, the narration. And let's say this is a movie. Yeah. Right? And when the, the uh, voiceover. Um, yeah, just everything here, it's got such a mood of a, of a film noir. 
just with the the way the shadows are drawn in the office with Mrs. Wayne, which I can't Constance, right? Constance. Just yeah. call me Connie. Yeah, just the way that she's drawn with the shadows, it reminds me of of Thelma Noirs that I've seen, almost like a double indemnity, right? Um, well, even that page where it's swapping between the two of them, and you've got yeah. her in the black, like negative space behind the panels. Yep. All the panels of uh, Slam, you've got the, the the blinds behind them, so you get this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like I, when I think of a noir like detective's office, I always think mm-hmm. of the light going through the blinds and right hitting the faces. You know, so mm-hmm. uh, For sure. a lot of that going on. But yeah, he starts getting to work and and looking for basically the the woman who like you know came to him with the note, yeah, right? Sue. Sue, yeah, and starts trying to track her down. And it, it takes a bit of effort. It takes some bribes. Luckily, though, he got a big wad of cash mm-hmm. from Mrs. Wayne, so he's got uh, ways to bribe people. Yep. And it's like, yep. okay, well, she was jumping around like an acrobat. So that's, that wasn't the first time she's let from a rooftop to another rooftop. So mm-hmm. she's athletic. That's something I can use. Uh, and he basically tracks her down through like a cleaning service. So it's, it's all off the books, which then leads mm-hmm. to a nightclub where she was performing uh, with a band. And he doesn't even know if he's really looking for the, the right person. To up until right. a point, he's just he's just hoping it is. He's hoping this is the Sue that he he's was looking hoping, for. He's hoping because this is all he has to go off of. Right? Yeah, it's like oh, the way she moved, you know, the 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 way that she moves around through society, she has to have these ins and outs, right? So that's why he tracks to the cleaning place, and then through the the lady that runs the cleaning place because um, it's all tax free, so they pay him under the table, or still they're not taxed, it's, it's paid under the table. Um, find out that she's also a dancer at a nightclub, and then. That's the page I really like as he's going from nightclub to nightclub and the way that the, the colors pop almost like they're oh, on yeah. the and stuff. It looks really good. And he's all bathed in shadow um, with the silhouettes of the people in the back. And, um, and he no, looks no, like notably one of the nightclubs is, got a, is, a, yep. is the Kit Kat, which has got a, a cat. So, yeah, you because know, obviously yep. we were comparing it to Catwoman last right. issue. Couldn't right. help but uh, notice that. Um, right. But I even wonder the auto. Nah, rhythm room it wouldn't be. I'm just wondering if Theo Clocks no. get any sort of rele- relevance, but because <laughs> uh, that's the name of the middle club. Right. But you know, eventually yeah. gets some information. Yeah. Um, Finds out that her she goes by Queenie, the lady that yeah uh, he's looking for. You know, um, and and ends up with talking to one of the bands at one of the nightclubs who who know. You know, um, what does he tell him? Uh, gives it the full name, right? It's Queenie Lydell. Yeah, full name so, and uh, just that she's a little bit different. And yeah. he ends up going to his his mother who reads tarot cards to 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 help. Like, can you help me find her kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Um, and they've got an interesting chemistry. Um, yeah. You know, uh, good, good mood there. Uh, and it leads him to a house where he goes up to the door uh, where Sue might have been staying uh, with this guy, I think his name was uh, James, and mm-hmm. so this guy opens the door after Slam's buying on the door a bunch, and he says, you know, do you know what time it is? Why are you knocking on my door? But then he hears a baby crying from, like, inside the, the place, so he actually kicks the door down, and we get this sort of action scene where this guy, who is being, like, invaded upon, like, his house has been broken right. into. Because we're not even sure that this is the house, right? Slam is, this is all off on a hunch, but Here's a baby crying thinks, oh, that's got to be the Wayne girl. Yeah, he basically, he, he's just acting on instinct, and he's acting, yep. uh, what's the word, recklessly, I guess. Yeah. Is maybe the, no, recklessly, and 
he pushes through the door and then the dude grabs his shotgun and just starts taking shots and he's you know he even slam starts to be like oh man i didn't even see the gun i'm moving too quick you know yeah um, it, so we get a scene where he has to jump over the stairs to tackle the guy yep. with the shotgun and then he goes back up the stairs to find the baby yep. only to find this baby uh is clearly not uh the, the wayne it's kid not, because it's, it's a black child kid, uh right? to go with the the black man whose house he just invaded right so, and then slams like oh my god i just i didn't even think of this through i made a huge mistake i just beat the crap out of a guy whose house i just you know broke into you know um but yeah uh such a good reveal too because his his face like just the look of when he looks into the crib yeah and the and, baby's obviously crying because there's right? been some nut job banging on the door for the last five minutes so, Banging on the door, yeah, there's a scuffle and gunshots downstairs. Yeah, like, it, all, it all adds up. But then mm -hmm. he looks out the window and he notices that in the garden there's a patch of grass that's been recently dug, you know, redug. Dug yeah. Mm -hmm. So he grabs a shovel and starts digging, and we get this sort of depressing full page spread of no, is the, the baby's wrapped up. The baby was already dead. Maybe this guy is like the husband of Sue or or whatever. S they might have something to do with this. Yeah. Right. So um, and we, we got the baby, so the confirmation here, and this is what I really love about the storytelling, right, is earlier in the book, we get this full-page spread of when Slam's talking about the baby. Um, we, we get this full-page spread of her wrapped in this owl blanket. And then that's how they signify this is her. Yeah, because, like, it's not going to draw just a dead baby lying there. You know? Yeah. Like, probably, at least probably not. I'm not saying you couldn't, but it's definitely... No more tasteful to sort of yeah. you know here's a blanket that you'll recognize and you know yeah. maybe, maybe there'll be a swear for your later but mm -hmm. i think we do have to you know at least float the idea that a novel on the blanket is significant because court of owls are a thing and mm -hmm. they're supposed to have been a thing in gotham long before for a long time. you know batman was a thing and, so. it, and it seems like uh mr wayne i forget his name uh, basically bruce's grandpa maybe doesn't have the right business dealings going on. And so there might be a reason that they would target him in this way. And that Constance doesn't seem like she came from the same place as her husband, right? She seems a lot more street savvy with the way that she's, you know, talked to slam over the course of these three issues. Um, and, you know, it, as he's looking down into this whole, at the the blanket yeah and the pouring you know, rain might the, add just for the atmosphere in the pouring rain right where it says you know a mother knows right yeah well i mean so, i love this ending because the so he's looking down at the the dead baby in the pouring mm -hmm. rain assuming there's not a swerve and there's something else in the back right. of it, but i'm assuming it's the baby right so the rain's pouring down he looks down mm -hmm. and we cut back to like the flashback at the start of the issue which was you know and the bathed mm -hmm. in red and it's the other cops you know you know try to pull him away from the the, the yeah. cop who was roughing the guy up and he's like standing his ground and starting to fight and his narration talking to Batman through all this last page is basically along the lines of, like, you may understand this. In fact, you're maybe the only person who could understand this is that, you know, mm -hmm. Gotham was this, like, you know, cancer. It was very corrupt. And people didn't notice it. It didn't seem corrupt, but it was if you were on the mm -hmm. inside and you knew. And I just never cared. I was numb to it. And then one day, I don't know what it did it, but I just started to care. You know, all of a sudden I mm -hmm. cared. And I love that mirroring the him looking down at the dead baby because it's this idea that he's he's been kind of like without I wouldn't say that he's not admitted it because he even said earlier on in this issue uh -huh. that he'd have done it for free but 
I would say that he's, he's he's drawn to it. He wants to try and help. He cares about the fact that this kid's been kidnapped. But mm-hmm. the idea that this this boiling point of him finding the body and like, okay, now this is like try to catch the murderer. This is not about saving a baby anymore. It's catching right. the killer responsible. It's got his sense of justice restored. Yeah. So I, I feel he was kind of numb like he was yeah. before, where he was just taking these jobs. Doing what he needs to do, roughing up whoever he needed yeah, to. Yeah, I, I guess what I'm getting at is that this has reignited his fire. Like yep. this, this yep. is—he's he's got a purpose to fight for now. I, uh, I love the one of the cops asked him back in the flashback, "Are you out of your mind?" And he just as as we're looking at him, they have all their nightsticks and stuff out, and he's up against the wall, and he just says yes, and then we get him throwing a punch and it says slam, which I love that that's what they're using the effect right. For Slam Bradley, yeah, um, God, it's just it's it's a great little you know page, but and then at, at the bottom where he gets back to him that you know he doesn't want to pay that price anymore. I find I found myself plenty bothered, and that yeah, the fire is re- reignited. This fire rises, um, yeah. So this is so good. This is anyone that's been dubious of Tom King. I had this discussion I think last week about Human Target mm-hmm. that some of our friends online were kind of like, oh yeah. You know, I've been kind of put off by Tom King because I was running on Batman, you know, and I was like, yeah, but like as of right now, Rorschach and Human Target, two of my favorite things that he's done. Supergirl was great. This is shaping up right now. We're halfway through, right? This is only six. That's only six issues. Yeah. Yeah. Halfway through. This is like exactly what I wanted it to be. It's this gritty noir about, you know, mid-century Gotham. Um, and just like King's just working on, he's firing on all cylinders right now, um, with the stuff and hopefully danger street that comes up, I think this week, right? Yeah. Um, uh, keeps so, that momentum going. Cause it says you know, a lot that you listed some books here that even mentioned Mr. Miracle strange adventures. You know, I'm just going off of his most recent stuff. Cause you know, uh, cause I had found the cover to this that was done by Smallwood. Um, and I shared that cause I was like, this, this is a beautiful painting. You know, um, and that's where people are like, oh, how's this? And I, you know, start talking about Target. And if you like this, go check out Smallwood's work there. And, and it, you know, there's this there's this barrier, it seems, with Tom King that I'm glad that we don't fall into because we'd be missing out on some really good stuff right now. Oh, some of the best uh, books we talk about are from Tom. Yeah. I, you know, and this ending as well, the other thing that I really like about it is so like the it's six horizontal thin panels yep. right going down the page mm-hmm. and the top one is him in the rain and then the four in the middle are the flashbacks and it's you know it's him in the full red with the white background mm-hmm. all the uh the bad guys are all sort of in silhouette black mm-hmm. with highlights of red this idea that he was back against the wall he was like you know what i'm not i do give a shit and I am not going to be threatened mm-hmm. or stopped by an army of you assholes. Like, nothing's going right. to stop me because now I care. I love mm-hmm. this idea that, like, that's literally this moment for him because that bottom panel where he's just sort of, like, yelling in the rain, it's like, yep. okay, it doesn't matter what this city puts up against me now. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm fixing this. I'm solving yeah. this. And I'm he's, I'm catching whoever's responsible the, for this. Yeah, he's in the same spot with his back against the wall. And, and the sad and truth this is... This is what happened last time. Like, on you some know. level, we kind of, I guess we kind of expected this because we never heard of this, mm-hmm. you know, this Wayne. kid, this Wayne, you know, like, mm-hmm. she's like, because this, this this is Bruce's grandfather, meaning that this should be Thomas's sister. sister. Yeah. Right. And I don't think we've ever heard of her. So mm-hmm. it almost feels like she has to 
die just for it to to fit into like you know right. not necessarily modern day continuity like in de- these no, but just, just for- in general batman continuity you know right right so or at least just not be around right like, yeah you know so um but yeah no it's so good and phil hester's kind of the perfect artist for this because it gets that mid-century vibe like you know slam bradley has a very square jaw and it and it fits into that it's almost like it reminds me of the incredibles art style a lot okay um, yeah. you know uh and just the way that like like uh constance wayne is drawn too she's very much a woman of upper class but there's a there's an edge to her like the the way that she wears her sunglasses inside and and whatever you know um and then just like you said the the compositions on the pages throughout this are, are really really good that fight scene with the guy with the gun in, in the house handled really really well yeah because that, that can you feel the chaos but you also can you know you don't get lost in it so yeah, honestly, Trump's, all, Trump's all, this, all this stuff in the office when Mrs. Wayne comes to talk to him, and you know, it's all the the, the moody lighting and the kind of the just the atmosphere, him in the rain at the end, and just how sort of defeated and like, like he, he did all this search on all issue, grasping at straws, only to get the worst possible outcome. You know, where he did find who he was looking for ultimately, but it's too late, and they themselves are either more directly involved than she was letting on before or just straight up this is like her and her husband who did all this and it was all just mm-hmm. to get money and it, you know right. or maybe, maybe it's more than that maybe there is court of all's involvement i don't know i i definitely feel there's something at play that isn't like it's i don't think the call is coming from inside the house right because mm-hmm. i don't think i think if if constance was in on it she wouldn't have gone to slam on her own and i feel like like, like grandpa wayne is in over his head on something that's what has led to this i I, honestly between the two of them i think mr wayne is more likely to be somehow involved than her yep because he's the one who wants to wait he's the one who wants to like do whatever they're saying right uh not actually think he is but if 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 i'm having to pick one between the two that i think is more likely to be involved is him yeah so whatever he did i think has led to his daughter being kidnapped and murdered Mm -hmm. right there's some business dealing let's let's take the court out like i I want it to be the court because I'm I'm on that conspiracy theory, whatever. But let's just say in, in the grand scheme of things, and and she knows this, but as a woman in the mid-century, right? This is 50s, 60s. She can't like you know handle stuff herself, so she has to go and have someone else handle it for her. And you know, um, I like that commentary here too, is that she's just as strong, but she has to go about it a different way. Mm. Um, so her and Slam are very much you know copacetic here. Is they both kind of have that edge to them, you know, that they're willing to do anything to get, you know, what they need. Like she needs closure, right? She knows that the, her little girl's probably gone because the mother knows, but she needs that closure regardless. Um, but yeah, and I'm wondering how this is going to play out in the modern times because this is like, I felt like when we we was at the end of the first issue, when she revealed that he's telling the story to Bruce mm-hmm. in the hospital. So I'm wondering if this is like his kind of not deathbed confession. But this is something that he needs to let Bruce know before he goes, you know. Uh, one one thing I want to bring up is just um, mm-hmm. so one of the things that Mrs. Wayne talks about her husband is mm-hmm. that he was always a bit of a a raging bull, but she she kind of liked that about him until you know one day it came mm-hmm. after her. Like she never realized she'd be on the receiving end of it. And I'm just I'm thinking in relation to what what Slam's saying at the end about 
oh, like, you know, you see all this going on in the city, but you accept mm-hmm. that that's the price for the whatever life you have. Well, I didn't want to play, pay that price anymore. I do wonder if in some level this idea of, like, her being in this relationship that's become abusive, you know, she's flies. I mean, she just very matter-of-fact says whenever, mm-hmm. you know, he gets upset about something, he knocks her around. That's just, like, that's the standard thing. Right. And I just wonder this idea that she was okay with that for a while, that she accepted that was the price she paid mm-hmm. for being in this, you know, rich family with, right. with, with these comforts, and maybe she's at the point now where she doesn't want to pay that anymore. So mm-hmm. that may fit into this overall theme of, like, you know, basically I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. This <laughs> is yeah. your part of the theme of this. Right. Well, and then we kind of got the vibe, too, that, like, he hates smoking, but she smokes, right? And she just kind of does what she wants at a certain point, because maybe she reached her break point a long time ago, mm-hmm. and she just does things anyways, right? Because she knows she's going to get it from him one way or the other, you know, regardless of what she does, so she just does what, you know, she needs to. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of personal dynamics going on here, too. You know, it's all yeah. very layered. So, um, again, some of the best work Tom King is doing right now is these, you know, miniseries. Uh, I mean, that, it's the, the only work he's doing right now. Well, I know that, but like, what I mean is like, it, it takes a different kind of writing. And I know because I've, I've had this conversation with the guy that works in my shop that, of course, these are better because they're shorter and they have a beginning and an end. And, you know, you don't have to write for the long, the long haul. But at the same time, other other writers have had, you know, long runs that we look back at favor favorably. Um, I just think his writing style here. You know, uh, th- this feels a very similar to Human Target and to Rorschach in the kind of stories that they're telling uh, about, you know, humanity uh, on a bigger level. Right. So, um, yeah, they all they all feel like not sequels, but pieces of the same kind of story, like a tapestry almost. Uh, and it's again, some of the some of my favorite books right now are Tom King books, which is weird. Uh, all right, what are you giving Gotham City year one issue three? I'm giving this a nine. This is a really good issue. Yeah, I have to agree with the nine. Uh, fundamental, there's just too many good storytelling pieces mm-hmm. in it and too many good moments, yeah. particularly the start and the end are just off the charts uh, mm-hmm. and stuff. So, very, very good. Dark Crisis Warzone issue one. Uh, there's four different stories in here, I think. Was, yeah. it, was it five? I think it's four. Yep. And it's a lot more there. They're broken down. Um, each team uh, has a different section, which is nice. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Each story is by a different creative team, which is why I'm not telling yeah. them all just now. Um, that said, though, I think we'll go through this relatively quickly because they're all pretty short yeah. and straightforward. Uh, the first story, which is written by Jeremy Adams uh, of the current Flashbook, mm-hmm. um, is basically about Iris being in the middle of the war zone and you know, the big fight in front of uh, mm-hmm. the Hall of Justice and runs into Linda, who's running around with superpowers, and they end up saving a couple of kids. And there's some bi- dialogue back and forth of like, wait, Linda, why do you have powers? And right. hey, Iris, don't worry, Barry's coming back. He always comes back. You know this. Yeah. Uh, and well, that's basically it. <laughs> yeah, it's basically a flash interlude. Yes. Right? Like they could throw this in. Um, I did like, though, that Iris is basically trying to do the reporting thing. And then she sees Shaggy Man going after these kids. And, and she throws her phone at, at him. You know, she's immortal. She doesn't have powers. But she's not just going to stand by. So I like that because it shows, you know, the cut of her jib. Um, and that's when Linda uh, shows up. And they they have this conversation about 
be married to the Flash, mm-hmm. you know, and and how it's different and and this. So, but yeah, and it all it felt very much like a a interlude from a Flash, uh, from the Flash. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it definitely felt like the <clears throat> you know the same person was writing this, mm-hmm. this writing the Flash book, and mm-hmm. just sort of like, oh, this is what the you know the waves are doing <laughs> during this yeah. whole crisis, which is um, you know it's fine. And Fernando Pissarro's on the art, so it looks pretty yep. good. This first story. I mean, I like too that that they go into like the this like secret area. That Barry, you know, it's like a panic room that's full of things. Um, and they come out with weapons and they put these Batman helmets that look like the Dark Knight Returns um, old Batman helmet. And I just think that's a funny visual. Yeah, on the kids, kids yeah. And, yeah, uh, on the kids. So, um, but yeah, no, it was, it was a decent story. Uh, the art I really liked. I, I like Pissarin, John Flash stuff. It's all very vibrant, like with the colors and stuff, but the, the art's kinetic. There's always some movement going on, so yeah, it's, it's good. Yeah, because they're basically reassuring each other Barry's coming back, and then the last page is mm-hmm. the Justice League arriving from above, so it's like, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, prayers were answered, basically. Uh, and then the next story is a Jim Corrigan story, where he you know, he sees that the Spectre is corrupted yeah. by the Great Darkness, and decides to say, you know, YOLO, and <laughs> jumps up yeah. to the Spectre and tries to rebond with it to, to take control back. Uh, which is kind of a nice idea uh, for mm-hmm. uh, for a bit. Uh, definitely these first two were the ones that I kind of enjoyed the most, just because it felt like either they had a nice little character beat or they had... I think they were both character beats, honestly, that I'm thinking yeah. about it. Uh, but, you know, like, th- th- this was by Frank Thierry and Serge uh, Acuna on the mm-hmm. on the art. Um, I-, I do like that the Spectre is just forming people and throwing them at, at other people. Mm-hmm. Um, so like he does with Roy here. Um, I like that a lot. Um, but yeah, Corgan trying to go in there because he knows what it's like when when God's vengeance is unchained, mm-hmm. right? Now it's being controlled by something else, and you know, um, I like all of that. Uh, it also made Raven look cool, which we need, right? Sure. Raven went toe to toe with the Spectre here, and granted, it was a darkness controlled Spectre, but still, um. And it hints that it's, you know, it's only only just begun. So um trying to figure out what the skull in the eye is. Is that still the darkness? Is that Corrigan? Like what's what's going on there? So Yeah. Uh so well, that one was decent. Uh and then from here it kinda of dips a little bit. There's uh, there's a Themyscira story here <laughs> with the Amazons, which I'd like the theme of this one, but reading it was a chore. Well, I I just didn't feel like there was much to it, other than just no. Here's what they're doing, which I guess is kind of true of the the, the yeah. flash waves as well to an extent. But like, it just kind of like, oh, the Wonder Woman are fighting at the Hall of Justice with the other characters, mm-hmm. um, and other Amazons are going around and just saving civilians from from various things that are happening, mm-hmm. and that's basically it. And there's like a tease at the end of uh, you know, you know some more Wonder Woman tribe drama, but it's a different. Yeah, with Esker Cedar having a vision of uh, Deathstroke coming or something. Yeah. Uh, so what I what I liked here though was was that we get a lot of time that the Amazonians are or the Amazons are warriors, right? And so they're always like this army and they're indomitable. But the fact here that they're stopping to to help, right? They're they're aiding the the firefighters and the paramedics and all of those guys, um, you know, because that's what Diana and Nubia and Yara would do, right? They're they're there in service. So again, I like the theme, just reading through it and stuff. I was just like, all right, I got to move on. This is a thick yeah. book. 
This was uh, Stephanie Williams writing with Caitlin mm-hmm. Yarsky on the art. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, and the art did look alright, actually, to be fair. Yeah, uh, the art I like fine. the art a lot. It looks good. Yeah. Uh, and then there's a Green Lantern story next, uh, about Matthew Rosenberg writing and George uh, Cambadius on the art. So, this is Joe and Guy mainly uh, bantering with each other. Uh, and just, like, we have to take this army of, like, shadow people that are coming down from the sky on. Mm-hmm. We have to try and hold them back. Uh, it's not looking very good for a minute, but Joe gives them a, like, a, a hoorah speech. Yeah. Uh, and basically inspires them all to keep fighting and keep the willpower going. And they win. Uh, there's one funny moment where mm-hmm. a Guy is like, you know, I'll stay down here and uh, fight like Doomsday or whatever while you guys go up mm-hmm. and take on the, the blob people. And then he sees like, you know, Doomsday or whoever it is like throw Superman down. And he's like, yeah. you know what? And Sang thought, no, I'll, you stay down here, Hal, and I'll go up and defeat the, yep. the, the blob people. Uh, it got me a chuckle. Uh, Lantern's on me. I also like at the very end, right? She gives this raw, raw speech. And, you know, and he's like, but don't give me any credit for this. This was all you. You let the fire under their butts. You know, hell of a job out there. She's like, but you're the one that, that convinced me. Right? And he's like, no, I didn't know. I, I thought we were all going to die. And he just flies off. Um, it kind of reminded me of the way that guy was written in the Green Lanterns with Simon and um, Jess. John Blank here. And Jess, when he was like their drill instructor. And he, because he knows what they're capable of, but he, he doesn't baby them. Mm. You know, um, it reminded me of that vibe of guy. So he's still kind of a, you know, um, He's still very acerbic and whatever, but here there's a, a touch of that teacher moment. So I thought that was good. And it's also good seeing Joe interact with everyone else. Because um, we stopped reading Green Lantern, right? She became a character in the Thorn stuff. But it's good to see her bouncing off a of guy and Hal and all of those guys. I also like the art a lot. It lends itself to Green Lantern really well, I thought. Also, just to, I know what you meant there, but you said it kind of weird. Uh, obviously, oh. Joe came from her own Green Lantern book first before the Thorn book. Right. Right. <laughs> well, and we didn't know if that was like in continuity because of the way that it was written. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. I, I she was you, such a different. I know that yeah. you meant brought her into yeah. continuity, but the way yeah. you, you said you made it sound like that book creator, yeah. which I'm just. Yeah. Before the comments, yeah, yeah, yeah. true, yeah, that's all. Yeah, I gotcha. Well, thank uh, you. Uh, yeah, and then the last story is. Well, it's kind of a Titans story, but it's actually Red mm-hmm. Canary mainly. Uh, meeting Black right. Canary for the first time, which I suppose actually d- does feel relatively prominent. And okay, this is mm-hmm. maybe it's go- going to be a thing going forward, and this is the first yeah. meeting. Uh, almost feels like a shame to throw it in here in this like weird, you know, anthology tie-in yeah. book where it might be hard to you know find there. Um, I will say they are here. There's a couple of pages where it's got this. Weird- so the page where she actually sees Black Canary for the first time on the bus. Mm-hmm. Um. Black Canary, it looks like she's drawn on a postcard, but then the postcard's been angled. So it's, it's like she's two-dimensional, but at an angle. And it, mm-hmm. she looks, like, really flat as a result. You know, she doesn't have depth. She has, like... Yeah. She looks like a flat surface that's been angled away from us, if that makes sense. No, I know what you're talking about. The, yeah. Uh, uh, no, thank you. Scene? Uh, yeah, yeah, that scene, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah that, that, yeah, that bugged me a little bit. Um, but... Uh, yeah, it's kind of a feel-good story, but it also feels like it, it feels almost a little wasted to just have it here in this little short at the back of this, yeah. rather than have it be a bigger moment. I, either like flashback to this in mm-hmm. you know the Green Arrow Black Canary book that's coming up, or yeah. you know wherever it's going to be relevant, I guess. 
Yeah, I like the fact that though this is her crucible because that she got inspired by Canary by seeing her on stage, right, with the band, mm. and then um, decided to go and help because that's what the world needs is you know proactive. So I, I do like all of that stuff um, here. Starting to think it's not shoes now because of some of the comments here. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, you know. So that's cool. So it's a new character, but um, but yeah, it was just kind of yeah. like a you know. For the record, this was Delilah S. Dawson writing with Tom Derenick on the art. Uh, so, I th- these things are always frustrating to me. I think this type of one shot, like I think, goes great if you're reading like a big trade of the actual event, and mm-hmm. this is slotted in where it goes. It feels like a, a bit of an extra, oh, almost like I'm saying these would almost feel like better as like many little backups in the main yeah. book rather than being this one shot. Because I think yeah. as a package, this feels really underwhelming to me as like an issue. Yeah, that they're I paid all very for. supplemental. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it doesn't really feel like any one of them necessarily has a, a good story per se. No, like, like the, the Flash one at the beginning, uh, the Adams one, felt like that should have been a backup in Flash. Ah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, actually, yeah. Stuff. Rather than a backup to Dark Crisis, they should all be mm-hmm. backups in their... I mean, not all of them have relevant books, right. but assuming they did. And, you know, right. some of them do. So you'd put that one on Flash, you'd, Wonder right. Woman would go at the end of a Wonder Woman issue. Right. Um... You know. Which back in the day, before they kind of changed how they do, you know, events and stuff, that's probably what would have happened. That would have been the tie-in, or the backups, you know. Because mm-hmm. um, I remember like Final Crisis did that kind of stuff, um, yeah. where there was the Final Crisis tie-ins. So um, it's like you know, a few of these were pleasant enough to read, but I, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say it's worth buying the issue for. Yeah, no. I like, mean, as the- a, as a Jeremy Adams Flash fan. Um, I think you would, you know, you'd want to get that just to have that story. But yeah, it definitely feels like this. But it's like six dollars for what eight pages? Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. Because I, I, I feel like when you have an omnibus later on that collects everything, and this is slotted in where it goes, it'll make that yeah. big battle feel like there's a lot going on. Yeah, which sure. is which is fine and cool. But as a as individual issue on its own, it just feels kind of underwhelming. Like I don't know if I needed any of that. Even though yeah. there is a couple of nice little moments in it for some of the characters. You know, Red, Red Canary meeting Black Canary for the first time, Linda and Iris having a nice little moment. There's, there's some nice moments between characters. Jim Corrigan has kind of a heroic moment. All cool. But not all of them just feel like moments and nothing more. There's not really anything around them. So, which is always my problem with these little anthologies where everything only gets like eight pages. I mean, some of them even yeah. less. So, yeah. yeah, I agree with all that. Um, Again, I kind of miss the little, like, the miniseries tie-in, like, the three issues yeah, yeah. that they would do. I miss when they would have that, because then it would, the story would feel like there was more heft to it, you know? And it wasn't just these small collections, so... Yeah. All right, what are you, what are you giving uh, Dark Crisis Warzone um, issue one? I'm going to give this a seven. Like, it, it's good, but it's not great, so... Yeah, I think I have to go with a six. It's just, mm-hmm. for me, it just feels a little bit, like... <sighs> It's just a little bit uh, superfluous, uh, ultimately. Yeah. So, you know, I wouldn't say like it's that bad, but I also feel like, yeah, if if, if it's not bonus material and something that, like on the main story or whatever, I, I would say mm-hmm. that it's not really worth going out your way to pay for. So, yeah, uh, there you go. All right. Poison Ivy, issue seven, G. Willow Wilson writing with uh, a Tugan Ilhan? Uh, on the art, I'm probably butchering that name. Apologies. Yeah. 
So uh, Takara looks like taking a break. Um, so you have uh, a, a new artist, and the art I'll just start off by not not as exciting as Takara. Like it's mm. not it's not bad art. There are some faces here that you know in proportions that are a little bit off, but it never distracts enough from what's going on in the story. Especially once the story starts getting into like plant monsters and and stuff like that. But when it's just basically Ivy in her human form and the main um, villain um, that we get, eh, a little bit left to be desired. But it starts with this rich lady overlooking her like big manor property with these landscapers. And her name is Beatrice Crawley. And um, you got Ivy talking about that people always think they know what bad guys look at look like because they're these, you know, big cartoon villains, right? They're grotesque. They look like monsters. But, you know, sometimes the plainest looking person is the biggest villain. And that's where he introduced to Beatrix Crowley. Um, talks about, you know, success and prosperity obscures the exploitation and greed. Um, so as they're going about, when, when Crowley's done looking, she grabs this key and opens the secret compartment where everything glows like this magenta shade of pink. And then she locks it back up. And... Um, Ivy is still talking uh, about like people and, and how they are and that, you know, evil bullies, um, that the evil bullies you into thinking that you're required to support it. Um, and that those are the guys you have to watch out for because they, you know, they, they're the ones that can fool you. And she would know cause she's a bad guy. So she's still trying to embrace the villain side of things. Um, come find out that Ivy's working on this landscaping crew to get close to, to Crawley, um, to find out what's going on. And the workers are like, be careful. Uh, Crowley doesn't like mistakes. And this is where it cuts back to Ivy's in her van driving through Montana. And she finds that this place in Montana uh, is called, uh, it's parts of Montana, home of future gas, which is a fracking operation. And Ivy goes on this thing about how They'll sell you that fracking fracking is actually greener and that it's better for the environment. But because of the, the process of fracking, there's a lot more that messes with the environment than just a simple drilling. Um, and that after beating, you know, Woodrow, she thought that she was invincible because, you know, um, she beat her mentor and, and you know, all of that stuff. And then as she's you know, driving through, she stops into this cornfield and there's this weird pink corn. Um, and that's what leads her to look over at this fracking rig going on and just spewing this, this pink, purple, magenta goo. Um, and as she's looking at this, one of those plant monsters from Woodrow uh, gets hit, uh, comes out of the corn stalks. Uh, and uh, she's like, well, this is weird because I defeated Woodrow. How are they still alive? Um, and so she goes to try to defeat this thing. It's eating part of the purple or the, the magenta corn. Uh, she takes off its head uh, and she realizes that this is tied to future gas. Um, she gets in there. She finds this family of workers and, you know, they're kind of like, yeah, we had to start working for future gas because or future gas because they're the only show in town. Like their crops are infecting our crops and, you know, it's just basically we're doing what we do to survive. 
you know, we don't want to work with them, but we have no choice. And so, you know, I was like, well, let's just band together, you know, um, you know, let's give the taste of town of medicine. And then she lets them know that she's in landscaping. So that's why she's there. Um, let's give this they, taste a turn of its medicine. Yeah, sorry. I'm, I'm <laughs> let's give this uh, town a taste of its own medicine. Um, so she's going to get all these workers together, but they feel like there's nothing that, you know, they can do to fight. And she's like, well, that's not the attitude to have because whatever they're doing is messing with your crop. So, you know, that's all you guys have. And that's where she gets in to start working. She gets into the house, right, by saying that she's there to deliver some plants for Miss Crawley. And um, she gets in there. She starts poking around. And she finds some some spores of, uh, like, mushrooms in her desk. And they look kind of like the mushrooms that she was using, the lamia spores. Um, and Crawley you know, catches her and says that they're their own, um, of their, their own design. And that, um, cause, uh, fungus are underappreciated workhorses, workhorse of the natural. They, you know, break down their own soil and whatever. Um, and this is where she lets Ivy know that she was spying. She knows who she is. She's not fooling anybody. So they, you know, um, they get into a scuffle and during the scuffle, um, the, the Lamia stuff activates in Ivy. And so she looks like she's this, you know, scary monster from the green. Um, and she's trying to scare Crawley, but she says, you go, you don't remember me. You know, I, you know, I knew you from back in the day. Maybe this will jog your memory. And she throws the stuff on her that negates Ivy's power that was keeping the Lamia spores in check from killing her. So as she's on the ground trying to fight this, Crowley leaves her um, and tells her that, you know, we're, we're cuttings from the same tree. We're the same person. I've just, you know, learned a few lessons that you didn't. And it goes to black. It goes to black and someone from uh, Crowley's team comes in and sees Ivy in like the the Lamia spore, like she was doing to other people, just this grotesque plant, like husk. And then it cuts and says, "Next and out of body experience." So it's you know, uh, Takara is deeply missed because the art's not nearly as good, mm. but it's definitely it kind of feels like Swamp Thing, where you know the first chunk felt like its own story that was set with her coming up against Woodrow and trying to find her place. And, you know, now in this half feels like, oh, there's there's more to that going on, but it doesn't feel like at least with with Swamp Thing, it felt like there's something big going on here. It just feels like it's going to be another typical Ivy story where she's going to fight someone that's like her, you know, whatever. Still enjoyed it, though, Um, but not not as much as I did the the first big chunk. Um, So I'll give this um, I give this 7.5. All right. Well, mm-hmm. next up, you checked out Monkey Prince issue yes. nine. Jean Lung Yang writing with Bernard Chang on the art. So it's been a while since I talked about this on the show. So just to get everybody caught up, uh, Monkey Prince had moved up to Amnesty Bay um, with his parents because his parents were working for Black Mana, 
And uh, it was there that a a half trench, half human, I think, or a trench that can masquerade as a human. Um, she's the princess of them. Ended up kind of falling for the monkey prince because it started off as that she wanted to um, consume his power by eating him. So it led to this, you know, Atlantis versus the trench war with these dragons that had forgotten they were dragons. Um, and uh, monkey prince had gotten the staff that his father had. Um, that's part of the whole monkey prince lore. Um, and he had learned how to use it there. Um, and so that's where that left off uh, is that the, the trench girl was kind of like, you know, talks the trench back down. The dragons remember who they are because of monkey prince. Right. Um, and so now they uh, monkey prince's parents had moved um, to Metropolis. So they're um, looks like they're working for Luther. Um, these, these creatures come in and attack. And these two scientists are, are walking around um, in full, like, body-like suits, uh, like they're working with something hazardous. Um, the security guard shoots at these creatures it, and kills them, and then these demons show up. Um, and they're the ones that they were dealing with early on, the one that had the penguin. And then um, I'm trying to remember what the other one was. Uh, that he dealt with. I can't remember right now, but um, this is where it ties into what's been going on in Batman and Robin, because these are, are the, oh, what's his name? The bull guy. Um, that's who they're working for. The one that, that the uh, devil Neza is there up against. <laughs> um, but as, as they're going, I'm trying to find his name. It, it came back up, but yeah, so, these demons attack and the uh, monkey prince's parents fight back with the lasers, which, you know, puts them in danger, uh, which gets monkey prince's mom. I thought killed early on. Um, basically her neck gets broken and they leave her body. The dad grabs her turn. Come to uh, King fireball was the name I was looking for. Um, they're there. These demons are there to find clones of Bizarro. So Luther has these clones of Bizarro in Luther uh, core. Um, so they break them out and they basically want to use them as soldiers for, you know, for King Fireball's uh, war. Um, and um, they, uh, one of the demons ends up eating one of the Bizarro clones Um which is super weird, but uh, Shaifu and and Monkey Prince are up floating on the uh, on a cloud, and they're Shaifu's trying to teach him how to meditate and basically take all these bad thoughts out. Um, and you know he did it, but not well. And Shaifu's just like, oh well, you, you know you'll you'll get better at it. Um, he decides to go. Monkey Prince goes. Um, to go meet with some friends because now he's actually meeting friends in Metropolis. And that's where the two magic users, I think it was Jinx and I can't remember who the other one was, attack Shaifu. And they end up bringing him in. Like, they on rocks. As um, Marcus, Monkey Prince's real name, is hanging out with his friends at Big Belly Burger, his um, dad comes and is like, son, we gotta go. And he's like, why? He's like, I'll tell you later. He has mom in the back of the car. It's like, we got to go see grandpa. 
And so they drive up into the, you know, out of Metropolis. He listens for his mom breathing. You know, she's still alive, but just barely. And they knock on the door and grandpa doesn't seem happy to see him. As they're getting her out of the car, um, it's Grandpa Gerard. Um, he picks the dad up and is like, "What did you do to my daughter?" So you're you're like, "Who's who's this grandpa? Why does he have? Why is he super strong?" Um, he offers to put her in a new body. Uh, Marcus's dad's like, "No, just fix her, please." Um, and it's gonna be a long night. So they're in Grandpa's lab. Um, it cuts over to Supergirl and she's investigating the LexCorp break-in. Um, she sees that there's these fingerprints on the, the laser gun, but they're not from a human. Um, so, um, she's going to start looking for what's going on. This gets her involved in all this, but Monkey Prince starts talking to his grandpa and is like, yeah, we can fix this. It's just going to be easier to put her in a new body. I don't know why. And um, his friend from uh, Gotham calls Kaya. And, you know, they just talk about everything that's been going on. And that's when Supergirl shows up. Because the fingerprints that were on the gun belonged to the parents. So the fact that they weren't human, um, something is going on. So Monkey Prince ends up developing a crush on Supergirl. So... All he can think about is, you know, how beautiful she is, how stunning, which leads to him being off balance for Supergirl. She gets upset that he calls her a pretty little blondie. Um, so she punches him out. Uh, <laughs> she knocks him basically into the next mountain. Um, he decides to pull out the staff. They go back and forth. Grandpa's like, well, you know what? You think I would confront a, a Kryptonian in this body? He goes and puts this mechanism on. Um, Monkey Princess still is like, oh, man, Supergirl is still smoking hot when she's angry. <laughs> um, she, he deflects the uh, her heat vision with his staff. Come to find out that uh, you see Grandpa's voice go, you sanctimonious meddlers. He looks down and Grandpa's the ultra humanite. <laughs> He's got this massive cannon trained on both of them. OK, and, OK. And this is where it, you know, that's where it ends. Um, and it says, you want a piece of the ultra humanite, you'll have it. And uh, this is part one of four. Um, and yeah, it's it's been a very enjoyable catch up because uh, it's still just Monkey Prince learning how to become the Monkey Prince. But now with the added stuff that we've gotten in Batman and Robin, um, it, it it's really Yang playing with a lot of DC things right so now we have the ultra humanite and now we have you know clearly his mom isn't fully human because mm -hmm. or his dad maybe dad is monkey king and doesn't realize it um and because it's that you know the non-human handprints is what led kara to him and it was dad that had shot the demon so there's a lot a lot of play here with his origins um Sounds but like yeah. uh, Monkey Prince needs to keep his tail in his pants by the sounds of it. Yes, he does. Which, which, according to people that are familiar with the Monkey Prince and, and the Journey to the West, is a thing, right? With the Monkey King, I mean. So, but yeah, him, uh, Marcus, and, and Supergirl, and him just constantly like when they when Chang draws him, he has heart eyes. 
and he's just very attracted to Kara, which is just so funny. Um, but yeah, it's Marcus finally adjusting. He's he's kind of over his fear of water. He's learning to to use the staff. The the headband, you know, he's he's learning very well under uh, Shaifu. So what it teases next is the Lazarus Planet event. So it's gonna go straight from this Ultra Humanite stuff, I'm sure, tying to whatever Wade's doing with that, which which is fine. I think it'll be okay, but yeah. It's just a Chang telling a Chang story. Or not Chang. Uh, Yang. It's Yang doing what we kind of like, where he's playing with all these different superhero pieces in DC. Like, was not expecting Ultra Humanite to show up as a grandpa. I thought, oh, this is another new character. And then he comes out in the traditional, you know, half-eight body, you know, with the brain exposed. So, yeah. I'm, I'm going to give uh, Monkey Prince 9 an 8. Yeah, all right. Well, everyone, to patreon.com slash TV. You can make myself a corner read a book in one of the higher tiers, and I'll be looking at Animal Man issue 26, which, as it turns out, I did not realize this was the last issue, uh, but the final issue of Animal Man. And the last issue ended with Animal Man walking up to Grant Morrison's front door and saying hello. <laughs> that was where we left the last issue. So this issue is kind of this wild meta reflection on the, what the story's been but also perhaps more about the writer and why they wrote the story what the story was about and it's kind of a critique on people and if not a critique at least raising the questions of what we like from art and is there something wrong with that maybe there is maybe there isn't you know maybe maybe it's uh it's all fine uh because we see the computer screen, we see the script being written, Grant Morrison sits down and never says their name, but just, just refers to himself as the writer. And Buddy's like, wait, you killed my family. <laughs> give me mm-hmm. them back. Like, give me them back right now. Um, and then at one point, uh, Buddy gets really angry, throws Grant Morrison through the window, but then Grant Morrison just walks in from behind and says, I made you do that. Like, I, I did that. Like, it's not real. No, that's real. I'm in your world because I can do that, but you can't come into my world. You can't come into the real world. And basically it just goes on like a an explanation of that Buddy's a comic book character, that Grant rescued him from obscurity, and there's going to be a new writer. But, you know, this run has been a little bit, you know, a little bit preachy. You know, it's kind of been like... Mm-hmm saving animals week to week, try to tell people about some of the horrible things that go on in the world with mistreating of animals and the environment and things like that. And but but you know, right, you know, editors and stuff want want superhero action. So that's why I had to have a scene where you threw me through a window because there has to be an action scene at the start of the comic book. Like it's it's all just stuff yeah. like that. It is it's it's going through and explaining stuff and they're walking around what you know looks like Scotland. I think you. I think uh, later on there's a reference to a specific place, uh, but it does look like I, I. I mean, I don't know if I've been to this exact place, but it looks very, you know, so, somewhere on the edge of Glasgow, yeah. somewhere <laughs> the looks of it. That's that's where Morrison's from, right? Is Glasgow? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think okay. So. If not Glasgow, is specifically then maybe I, on the outskirts, but I wasn't sure if they were from a a smaller town, but yeah, I'm gonna look. Yeah, and Buddy thinks this world feels very bleak, this representation of the real world. Mm-hmm. 
Grant makes a bunch of superheroes like come out of the water and basically disappear almost instantly. And he's like, well, you know, the 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 editors you know want some superheroes. They want some colorful costumes. So I I made them appear and then disappear as quickly as as you know as, as... this. This was the '80s version of him just ragging on editors, right? Like, oh, uh, you want superheroes? I'm gonna put them in there, but I'm gonna make a there, commentary. Yeah, there is a critique yeah. of comic book writing and like fiction in general. Yeah. Uh, at various points, they go into the idea that we make characters, we make characters through our art, but then for entertainment's sake, we kill them, we torture them, we put them through misery, because mm. that's what makes good stories. But what if they kind of really exist somewhere? And there's this almost idea that Grant is God to Buddy and Buddy's mm-hmm. world, because he's because they're the one who's writing it, and the one who's creating mm-hmm. everything. But then, what does that say about, if, if there is a God, and God's doing all this and all the awful things that happen in the world then what does that say about god you know like there's this kind of metatextual kind of way to look at it and at one point buddy notices wait you write the doom patrol as well and grant's like (laughs) yes but they don't know it (laughs) that's so funny (laughs) which you know around this time it would have been when grant was writing doom patrol so right uh, right that's pretty funny and buddy's like do you write all the heroes and Grant's like, no, I, I don't have time for that. But I, I write you, I write Doom Patrol, and other writers like take other, and there'll be a new writer soon. So you might go, you may turn to a generic superhero. I might, like, I might make you, like, for, forget you had a family because I can do that. Like, you know, like all these things. Um, but there's a, I want to get a specific quote here that I, uh. That I, that I want to specifically point out. Uh, so something about... Oh, yeah. So This is obviously very meta-commentary of the time, but talks about how part of the reason why Buddy's family got killed in the story is that over the last couple of decades, and this is especially true towards the end of the 80s, is that comic books have gotten more violent and darker because it's more realistic. And the line that Grant has here is... And, God help us if that's true, because, like, heaven forbid we actually want our characters to have some happiness, or to root for peace, or to, to or to like, insp- aspire to be peaceful and be, be, you know, content with life. We have to write misery, we have to read all these things. So obviously it's the sort of thing where if you're talking about writing Superman properly, <laughs> this all kind of feels like it clicks out of place with that. Uh, but... There's a page towards the end where Grant just starts thanking people. Uh, thanks the editor for putting up with their bullshit. Thanks the artists. Uh, thanks the letterer. Thanks the people who write into the newsletter. And just g- generally has a... It, it, and this all happens as Buddy's fighting a generic shark supervillain that Grant yeah. just made come out of the water. And that's happening in the background as Grant's just thanking people for working on the comic book. It's it, it's wild. It, it's just the, the most bizarre thing you've ever mm-hmm. seen um and the whole time buddy's like this is bullshit like give me my family back you bastard you're evil you're awful and uh grant tells a story of this cat that, he, that they, they had just prior to this that passed away very young because something pierced its lung some something that mm-hmm. the cat ate pierced its lung and as a result died quite young and 
Triumph was drip feeding the animal for a while, trying to keep it alive as as much as they could, but ultimately passed away. And this pain ties it. So it's kind of comparing the pain Buddy's going through with like, well, mm-hmm. who took my cat from me? This is Bill's. You know, why did I have to lose a cat? Uh, and Buddy's like, no, like you can do something about this. You can you can fix this. You give me my family back. And ultimately, Grant just fades away and you and says, you're going to forget we ever met. And Buddy's left in sort of blank white space, and it's a really kind of poignant moment. And then Buddy just pops up on a, on his couch in the living room, and the doorbell rings. But right before, as he's going to the door, there's a cat on the table. The implication being that Grant's written his, his cat into the story. And then he opens the door, and his family's there. Uh, the wife and the kids are there. They don't know they died. Buddy doesn't even really realize. He kind of just says, oh, I feel like I just had the worst dream. And he has a tear in his eyes. He's like thankful to see, see his wife again. And then the final page is it cuts back to Grant. And they've written this ending. And basically says, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong at all. And, you know, that's it. And mm-hmm. he looks, or sorry, they look down at the, a picture of the cat that, mm-hmm. that they lost as as he's uh, typing this out. It's just, I don't know, it's, it's all very reflective. It's reflective of why they made choices in writing this comic book, but mm-hmm. also a critique of fictional writing in general, if not specifically comic books, and talking about why do we make these choices when we're dealing with these characters and why do we mm-hmm. put them through this misery? Is it so we can relate to them because we go through our own misery? And ultimately at the end does something kind for the character that they've been writing. Mm-hmm. Chooses to give Buddy the happy ending where no, none of that really happened. And it doesn't feel cheap. Like There's a million ways that writing an ending like this where Buddy just gets his family back could feel cheap. But because... Mm-hmm this book's been teasing that some unseen hand and the meta stuff like for a long time and the whole final issue's kind of point is that there is unseen forces and in the case of a comic book the unseen force is the writer making these decisions it it kind of works it oddly fits and doesn't feel cheap it doesn't feel cheap that that grant's just magically given the family back because it's actually an act of kindness that the writer's done this the writer became mm-hmm. a part of the story and show like so it became less about buddy fighting for his family and this at least he still fights for his family in the sense that he's trying to convince grant to do it so mm-hmm. there is still that element there but it becomes more about winning the heart of the writer and like try to like sh- shred away the cynicism and provoke an act of kindness even though it's for a fictional character that arguably we shouldn't feel the need to do something kind for because it's a fictional character they don't really exist but mm-hmm. ultimately grant does but yeah, but it's still his creation, and he has compassion for his creation. So ultimately, you know, it's he gives him what he wants. Yeah, uh, and the ending, Grant goes out looking for their imaginary friend that they mentioned earlier on the issue uh, called Foxy when they were a kid, mm-hmm. and the parents uh, brought, bought them a torch so that, he, mm-hmm. so that he could go and flash the light and get a response from Foxy in right. the hills. And he goes and, or sorry, they goes and does this at the end. And ultimately, uh, the, the ending is that Grant's coming back to their imagination, to their childhood. Mm-hmm. Goes out and says, I've come, I've come to send a signal in the dark. 
in the end it seemed like the only thing worth doing are you there can you see me foxy i came back i didn't forget i came back the idea that grant after all this time is rediscovering their their childhood yeah. their imagination their love of the the, the imaginary character right. in, in animal man and and foxy the, the yeah. real imagine well, well, the, the quote-unquote real imaginary friend <laughs> right well and that's that's where morrison started with an imaginary friend as a kid and then those imaginary friends become these fictional characters right because they're all the same yeah i mean what's what's the difference like superman doesn't actually exist but we have a parasocial relationship with superman and Batman. Oh, for sure. And that almost makes them like imaginary friend. And it's uh, worth mentioning there is a kind of final page where there's no response to the light, mm-hmm. and Grant just turns around and goes home and talks about the yeah. There's, you know, there's no lights in the streets. Everything's kind of dark. Right. It's kind of it's just this quiet, tranquil, somber ending of just someone looking for the magic and not getting the response they got as a kid, but. Mm-hmm ultimately still made this choice to give the character they were writing the happy ending. You know what's funny is that there's always been this thing about, you know, Morrison and and Moore, and that they they do similar kind of stories that break down comic books and make them accessible on this different level. But it's just like Morrison seems to have that light, like the twinkle in their eye when when they're writing these things. Whereas Moore, everything kind of after a certain point was... Kind of like that twinkle was gone. It was like, this is just how it is. It's kind of like almost nihilistic in a way. And, and it just, it feels like this was the jumping on point for Morrison to tell the type of stories that they do throughout DC. Right. Cause uh, this is, yeah, this is definitely you know, the start. Cause this is Morrison's, this is far from Morrison's last foray into doing meta stuff. And yeah. Cause it, a lot of that stuff feels like in Final Crisis when Superman goes to that the other realm where all these forgotten, um, like basically IPs exist, and Superman has to band together, and that's where they get the Wish Machine. It's almost you know, but- uh, it's just compared to some. It's almost like mm-hmm. Toy Story, the idea of the toys yeah. that are forgotten and left behind, and they feel right? sad because they're not played with anymore. It's kind of the same right? thing where, and that, and that was in, that was in this run, and like yeah. you're saying in Final Crisis, the, these characters who feel left behind. Mm-hmm. And so, the, but there's always a twinkle and there's always a sense of imagination and hope and, you know, the, it, not everything is just like terrible. And I just, it's funny that it was there from, you know, Animal Man 26. And I, I, think so that's, like, I think that's what makes this work is the idea that this is a writer who wants to believe in hope and nicer yeah. things and just decides to give the happy ending out of mm-hmm. that kindness. That's what it becomes about. It's, about. it's about making that choice at the end rather than a traditional narrative ending where Buddy somehow, you know, get, gets, gets the yeah. MacGuffin that helps him bring his family back. Right, right. It's an actual... Buddy has a conversation with God. Don't get me wrong. You know? You, you can't do this too many times. Like, yeah, this only works... No. You know, it works this time because it's yeah. so bold and, and different and new. And Morrison's never written themselves back into... Not that I know I of. Yeah, not that I know of. Maybe, maybe in other things, but... You know, but there's always that sense of imagination, even in something like Claws... You know, there's, there's the idea of the Christmas spirit, you know, being this force for good and whatnot. Like, it's just, there's themes throughout Morrison's work that, you know, I, I really, really I like. Because a long time ago, I convinced myself I wasn't a Morrison fan. It's like, well, it doesn't read the right stories. Um, 
Oh yeah, I definitely think I like Ellie more because Doom Patrol Morrison, Animal Man Morrison, Arkham Asylum Morrison is definitely mm-hmm. more about bag. I, I I do like some of uh, the build up to Batman R.I.P. and the Batman and Robin yeah. stuff after. I really like, but I don't like Batman Inc. or uh, right. Search of Bruce Wayne as much. But you know, a right. uh, Return of Bruce Wayne. Sorry. So mm-hmm. yeah, really. Good. Also, when Morrison's doing his thanking stuff towards the yeah. end, the last thing that they get to is. Th- they say that uh, if you if you care about animal cruelty and want to do something, uh, join you know support PETA. Here's their their address right. and number. <laughs> like let in the book, That's literally, it's just so in the book. Funny in dialogue, and I'm sure right. I'm sure I don't know if it's still the same, but I'm sure it was accurate at the time. <laughs> yeah, that's so. very funny. Um, but yeah, so when you were talking a, a long time ago, when you were going over this, and you had the Wiley Coyote mm-hmm. issue. Like if you know this is coming, that issue stands out even more because it's all about how gods play with their creations, mm-hmm. and and just you know why does the coyote keep chasing the roadrunner? It's because we we keep making him, and when you realize that Morrison is showing up at the end, so this was something that I had learned from reading Wizard magazine. They had like the top twenty five mind blowing moments in comics, and this was like two or three. So like I've known about this without having read it for like a long time now. So knowing that this is what you're building to, and then hearing you break down that coyote issue, it just puts that whole run into a different perspective because it's seeded like throughout. Mm-hmm. That if you know Morrison's coming, right? That just the steps that it takes to get him there is to get uh, Buddy to meet Morrison is is just crazy. And like this happened in 1990, right? Like this is like crazy comic book writing for 2022, but this was going on. Like what I, I would love to know what the reaction was in 1990 to this. Yeah, I I have to imagine it will be an interesting read on a second time, just because yeah. if you know exactly where it's going and you've got all those mm-hmm. themes in your head. And there's a little other things that's mentioned in this issue, like oh, it's awfully convenient to be able to just like jump to a new location from panel to panel. You just yeah. cut to the new location and it's that easy. Mm-hmm. Almost like as if comic book characters don't realize they're hopping from place to place and there's yeah. no there's no in between time. Which we assume that it exists, we just don't see it. But th- yeah, this is suggesting that no, literally, there's just like a, a skip to the next panel, and right. nothing else is there. Yeah, it's what happens in between the panels. So uh, I don't know. Yeah, just I know. Fascinating to read. Obviously, I was expecting a biggie because it's been building up for a long time and it's got a reputation. So, uh, mm-hmm. but it was a very invigorating and fascinating read where. It really got my mind going as to what it was actually saying, and it, it felt very self-reflective, and that it felt it felt just as much about Grant Morrison, the writer, as it did about Buddy Baker, the character, mm-hmm. and everything that was being said about writing this comic book felt like it was a critique of the world and the things in it and the attitudes of people, and bizarrely relevant to some modern debates about how superheroes should be portrayed and how dark they should be and things like that, and. The idea that cynicism from Morrison was well, not cynicism, but it's weird to call it. You know what I mean? Like that's that, that's what I was looking for with with Alan Moore was the cynicism versus the kind of almost optimism that Morrison seems to write with. I mean, I I, I love Alan Moore. I might even mm-hmm. still put Alan Moore above Grant Morrison mm-hmm. overall for my taste. And I think, I guess I would. Alan Moore is very much the Stanley Kubrick of comic books, and. Mm-hmm the way that he presents his stories and worlds is so rich in detail. Uh, and I don't even necessarily mean because there's a lot of words. I just mean 
Yeah. And and how the there's layers told. to it. There's yeah. There's a reason why Johns is able to build a Green Lantern run out of one issue of stuff that that Alan Moore had brought up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's a whole bunch there that Johns just brought out. And then because I see this people complaining like that Watchmen characters are showing back up in Johns' stuff and like just let Alan Moore rest and you know like like Alan Moore's gone. But it's like well, no, the reason that John's able to tell these stories 40 years later is because of the work that Morrison or Morrison that Moore did, you know, that there's so much there to play with. So, yeah, I comparing him to Kubrick makes a lot of sense because, like, I'm not huge into Kubrick, but the Kubrick that I do like, it is because it is so detailed and you can, you know, there's there's a there's something to his filmmaking. It's it's, it's it, layered. It, Kubrick just is thoroughly an artist and every mm-hmm. single frame is is a is, is a it, painting almost and i think yeah. alan moore in a similar vein with comic books like every page every every character every scene just feels like so thought out and intentioned mm-hmm. uh there's not to like downplay other comic writers or anything by any means it just there's no. a there's a level to it that just feels next, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel that whenever I watch a Kubrick movie, I feel that way, and I feel like that whenever I read an Alan Moore comic. So, uh, yeah. Well, my- and also I think a lot of to be say about Kubrick too is a lot like David Lynch, where they did not come from film; they were artists of a different sort. So they approached oh, film sure. almost from an outsider's perspective, and I almost wonder if that's what, how more and Morrison kind of approached it I mean, as well. I mean, I don't know if David Lynch is a perfect comparison for Morrison, but there is definitely well, no. a little overlap. Well, I was just bringing because his movies stand out as well. Like, again, yeah. I'm not a huge fan of David Lynch, but I remember the ones that I've seen. He usually you has know? heart in his story, though. If you want to compare yeah. it to Morrison, David yeah. Lynch, the, underneath all of the nihilism, which is also present in David Lynch yeah. stuff, there's usually, like, the hope of, like, a good element, like, mm-hmm. winning the day, ultimately. Yeah. That tends to be their burden. I mean, deep. that's... That's the first season of One Peaks, right? Is the hope that they're going to uncover what that's, happened to uh, Palmer, right? You know, that's the agent. Uh, oh, God, the name's escaping yeah. me. Uh, Kelly McLaughlin. Yes, uh, I know who you mean. Yeah. Uh, Cooper. Cooper, there you go. Agent Cooper. Yeah. He he is, like, he, he represents just this, you know, he is the Superman. He is the good-natured, yeah. heart-in-the-right-place guy in a world full of cynicism and awfulness, and he might be able to save the day. Uh, it gets more complicated than that as it goes on, of course, yes. but that's very much kind of where it starts. Yeah, but I just, I just want to bring up, like, because you said that, like, with, like, Kubrick is an artist in the way that, that Moore is, and that's, to me, that's because they, they're approaching it from a different perspective, right? Um, and I feel like Morrison does the same thing, because it is from a different perspective. Because, again, in 1990, who else is putting themselves into comic books and then commenting on it? You know, like commenting on editorial, and this is why the family. If, it, died, if because, honestly, it feels like Grant know? Morrison's having a midlife crisis while I'm reading this issue. To be honest, that that's the, the, the <laughs> sense I get from it. Anyway, yeah. uh, it, yeah. it's a it's a hearty nine point five out of ten. This issue, that's no surprising. Uh, so there you go. That'll take us out the part of the show. We pick our favorite stuff of the week for it. Panel slash moment, favorite cover and favorite art. Panel slash moment, Matt. What you got? So I'm gonna take it from Gotham City Year One. And it's going to be that panel at the end where they ask Slam if he's lost his mind. And he just with, uh, is back against the wall looking at this army or these other detectives with billy clubs or nightsticks. And he just says yes. And then proceeds to take it to him. Like that is such a 
Fantastic moment. I'm going to go from the same page, but I'm going, I'm going yeah. to the very last panel um, and just him saying, I was plenty bothered by it. Because just the, the meaning behind yeah. that and what it means for him and his motivation in the story, I just think works so well. So, a uh, bit of a cop-out perhaps, but uh, that's what I'm going with. Uh, covers, uh, best cover of the week. Uh, so basically, there's several good covers for Batman in Gotham Year One that are up for consideration. Uh, there's... A jock Batman cover, which is black and yellow, which looks great. There's a Gabriel Del Otto cover, which is uh, Batman in his blue and grey uh, uniform, which I think is great. That's pretty uh, cool. Yeah, there's also a Sejic cover, where Batman's standing in front of the, the dinosaur in the Batcave, which looks pretty stunning. So, oh, that's very good. Uh, there's a small wood cover for Gotham City Year One. That's that's Almost, the that's the cover. Maybe I'm tipping my hand, uh, but that's what got the conversation going with. Um, yeah. But know, there's else. also Franca Villa. Yeah, there's also a Franca Villa too. cover with uh, the blue and the yellow colors. So yeah. I had five to choose from between those uh, that all stuck out to me, and I think that ultimately I'm probably going to go with the Franca Villa one. But, okay. but I think the colors I really like, and I think that the mood of a Frank Avila piece fits uh, Gotham yeah. Year One so well that I, I just think it, it, it sticks out to me the most. But obviously, uh, all five of those were great. Uh, what was your pick? So um, I just want to mention the Ivy covers because the Ivy covers are really are usually pretty oh, good. Sure. There's there's a Middleton one that just it's very soft light, um, and just it looks really like it's very pretty. But I have to go with the Smallwood cover for Gotham City Year One just because, yeah. I mean, I don't go out of my way to pick up variants very often, but that one I did. Um, okay. So, yeah. All right. Uh, Art of the Week? I'm going to give this to Batman with, with Jimenez. It's the one-two punch of Jimenez and uh, Leonardo Romero. Um, hard to beat that. I mean, Hester in Gotham City was, was pretty... Pretty close. But, I mean, it's yeah. it's between those two because like I only read three new books this week. It was a quiet week, right. uh, and next week's relatively quiet. I'll tell you about that in a second. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I was I was struggling between these two. I'm, I don't want to go with Hester overall, but it's just very close. Yeah. So uh, all right, rank your books, Matt. So I'm gonna go with number one is Gotham City Year One. Number two is Monkey Prince. Number three is poison ivy four is, no uh three is batman four is poison ivy and five is dark crisis uh Warzone. well easy for me number one is gotham city year one number two is batman number three is dark crisis Warzone. so there you go there you go <laughs> easy peasy so i'll tell you what's coming next week from dc comics so we have a wonder woman 794 superman son of kal-el issue 18 batman spawn issue one Batgirls 13, I Am Batman 16, Danger Street issue 1, Dark Crisis Big Bang issue 1, that's another one shot, Uh, Batman Incorporated issue 3, Wildcats issue 2, Harley Quinn Uncovered issue 1, and the Batman Scooby-Doo Mysteries issue (laughs) 3. There's owls there too. Oh, very good. Uh, So... Obviously, we're checking out Danger Street because uh, we're yep. excited about the new Tom King book. 100%. Um, it is quite a light week, so I might look at Batman Spawn. Just, yeah, just, you, just for the giggles. See, see what it's you, like. You let me... I mean, it is Capullo art, but... Um, 
Yeah. Are you reading? Uh, uh, I assume you're reading Wales Cats issue too. Yeah, yeah, I'm reading Wales Cats. Yeah. So I have, I have Superman. I have or Son of Kal El, Danger Street, Big Bang, and Wildcats. So uh, what's the Harley Quinn uncovered? I don't know. Just the new Harley. I like I like the cover with her with the uh, hyenas. Uh, in celebration um, of Harley Quinn issue twenty five, this is a gorgeous, irreverent look. Oh, at it's the all reason. covers. Oh, it's all variant covers. Ah, <laughs> that makes sense with the title. Belkin, yeah, Belkin, y'all out for six bucks for. I mean, our book doesn't do bad, but. Yeah. Oh well. Yeah. Um. There you go. Uh, that's what's coming. Maybe, next. maybe I'll catch up on the Bad Girls Annual and use that as a jumping on point because oh. I did like that. That Freaky Friday. Maybe I'll I'll pick up Bad Girls thirteen. We'll see. Oh, that we'll see how many goes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, why you said that was the start, right? Last week. Uh, that's the, yeah, that's just the start of a new uh, arc, militia. Gonna see if maybe my my store will loan me out Batgirls because it is Christmas. <laughs> and, uh, money money has to be spent elsewhere, but you know they're usually good for that. I'm I'm a pretty good customer. Uh huh. <laughs> so uh, there you go. That is uh that is the show. That's episode three three four. Uh, so obviously you can like, subscribe, ding the bell for notifications. That helps us out a lot, as does, of course, rating the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from. You can support all the content by going over to patreon.com slash TV and support us over there, uh, for any amount per month. At the $5 to you get early access, uh, whenever the show is ready late in the Saturday, as opposed to waiting for the, the launch time on the Sunday. Uh, so if that's of interest, check, go check it out. Uh, there's a Discord page. You can get a link to that in the description. Uh, there's a Twitter at DC Comics Podcast, and uh, that's everything. I feel like from well, I suppose I could promote the other YouTube channels. Mail Fuzz Movies and Mail Fuzz TV have movie and TV review podcasts uh, featuring myself and a variety of other people. Uh, so go check out uh, those. Uh, but that is me, and I'm about to pass out. So thank you once again for watching and listening. We always appreciate it. Keep reading DC comics, and remember to never get lost in the Speed Force.